Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 251, How the U.S. Saw Stalin and the USSR in 1943, Part 3. Last time, we covered the leadership of the Soviet Union, along with answers to questions posed to the former ambassador to the Soviet Union, Joseph Davies. Today, we wrap up the series based on the March 30th, 1943 issue of Life magazine. On page 64, they featured an article praising the collective farms of the Soviet Union. They said, quote, Although Russia was always overwhelmingly an agricultural country, most Russians used to go hungry. Year after year, crops were poor and inadequate. The land was sadly misused. Peasants worked inefficiently and without incentive, using farming methods hardly more advanced than those of the Middle Ages. Well, there are quite a few misstatements here. First, most Russians did not go hungry all the time. There were numerous famines and periods of poor harvests, but this was primarily due to poor weather or when too many men were fighting in wars, such as the ones in Crimea in the 1850s, and not enough harvesting their crops. Yes, Russia was somewhat inefficient on how they handled their farm, but to blame it on incentives is hypocritical, as the collective farms actually took away any incentives. Before, the more you grew, the more you made. Now, as for the misuse of land, that's kind of laughable. If you remember the episode on Trofim Lysenko, he single-handedly ruined whole years of crops with his insane ideas where he rejected Mendelian genetics in favor of his own pseudoscientific ideas, later termed Lysenkoism. Lysenko's ideas and practices contributed to the famines that killed millions of Soviet people. Also, the adoption of his methods from 1958 in the People's Republic of China had similarly disastrous results, culminating in the Great Chinese Famine of 1959 to 1962. They further went on to write in Life, quote, Whatever the cost of farm collectivization in terms of human life and individual liberty, the historic fact is that it worked. By forming large farm units, the collective made possible the use of farm machinery, which doubled agricultural output before 1913, or between 1913 and 1937. Let's digest this before we complete this paragraph. The output they're talking about comes from the Soviet propaganda machine and is nowhere near close to what the truth was. Their five-year plans had lots of lofty goals, but the reality was they rarely, if ever, came true. The talk of the cost of human life comes with no discussion of the numbers, which range from 3 to 11 million people who died in the numerous famines caused by collectivization with the Holodomor being a prime example. The following article was entitled, quote, Great Industries Supply the Great Red Army. It begins with a 1931 quote attributed to Joseph Stalin when he talked about the industrial capabilities of the Soviet Union. Quote, We are from 50 to 100 years behind the advanced countries. We must run through this distance in 10 years or they will crush us. 
It was around this time that Stalin proposed his infamous five-year plans. They had extremely lofty goals, many of them almost in the realm of science fiction. Many in the West blamed the Tsarist regime for the sad state of industrialization in the Soviet Union. But that is nowhere near the truth. Under Nicholas II, Russian industrial capacities grew substantially, but the burden of supporting their involvement in World War I hurt them significantly. The losses from the war and the subsequent Russian civil war cost the country over 20 million lives, as well as the destruction of whole swaths of industrial capacity. Add to it the famine caused by the drought of 1920-21, to and you have a country that had been stripped down to its bare bones. The article claims that the first two five-year plans were generally completed. This is how they described all three. Quote, The USSR was turned from a backward industrial country into a first-class industrial country through three five-year plans. The first plan, starting in 1928, placed the entire emphasis on heavy industry, which would turn out machines and the materials for machines. During this period, the vast Soviet building program was begun. The second plan, starting in 1933, set out to put the machines to work, producing usable goods, including consumer goods. The third plan, starting in 1938, hoped to give Russians a chance to enjoy good leisure, culture, and so forth. The first two plans, grandiose beyond the dreams of everybody, but the Russians were generally completed. The third was not. Instead, all Soviet industries today are turning out war materials, and nobody has leisure for anything. Well, let's analyze the claims and contrast them with what we now know really occurred during the three five-year plans. The first one, which began on October 1st, 1928, and lasted until December 31st, 1932, a period of four years and three months, was touted by the article in Life, as well as by the Soviet government, as a great success. What they don't tell you is that the price that was paid for the gains was extremely high. The price was paid for by the people of the Soviet Union, especially those who worked on the collective farms. When forced collectivization was enacted, it was met with strong resistance. The expected strength of the resistance stunned the Soviet authorities. Instead of trying to work with the peasants who worked the farms, they decided to lead an all-out attack on them. What they discovered is that by forcing the peasants to turn over all of their production at a minimal price, they would be able to fund their industrial gains. They did this by barely paying enough to the collectives to cover their costs, then charging far more to the consumer, profiting from this gap. This, of course, was a direct contradiction to Marxist doctrine. Nothing within the Marxist theory explained collectivization and the conversion from an agrarian society to an industrial one. The only sure thing is that Marxist theory demanded an industrialized society, just not how to get there. During 1928, the Soviet Union regained all the industrial capacity that existed before World War I. Still, they knew that they were behind the rest of Europe, and in particular, 
the growing threat of Japan and its blossoming industrialization. Therefore, the article was correct that the focus of the first five-year plan was on heavy industry. It was estimated that 86% of all industrial investment went into heavy industry. Over 1,500 factories were built, with entire cities being carved out of the forests in the Urals and western Siberia. One city, Magnetogorsk, was built during this time and inhabited around 200,000 people. And it's likely that many of the new workers were actually forced to move there. While the first five-year plan was viewed as a success in the amount of production it accomplished, there was a problem. As Ryazanovsky and Steinberg put it in their book, A History of Russia, quote, quality, however, was often sacrificed to quantity, and the production results achieved varied greatly from item to item with remarkable over-fulfillments of the plan in some cases and under-fulfillments in others. Besides, the great industrial spurt was accompanied by shortages of consumer goods, rationing, and various other privations and hardships which extended to all of the people, who at the same time were first forced to work harder than ever before. There was far more to the first five-year plan than just industrialization. Also called, quote-unquote, the Great Turn, it was an attempt to transform society as a whole. It was a true cultural revolution. Anyone deemed to be against the radical changes was either put on trial, like the engineers at the Shakti coal mines. They were accused of sabotaging and conspiring with those opposed to communism. But the most significant changes came in the countryside. As I mentioned earlier, the peasants were forced to join Kolkhoz farms. The resistance was met with force. It is estimated that one million peasants disappeared, along with four million of their families between 1928 and 1933. Because of this kickback to collectivization, Stalin decided in March 1930 to slow down the changes even allowing farmers to retain a bit of small private plots of land. This accelerated the peasant movement into the coal causes. The first five-year plan, though, was pretty much a success, although not nearly as significant as the Soviet government led on or as reported by life. By the end of the first five-year plan in 1933, the Soviet Union realized they had a serious problem on their hands, with the ascension of Adolf Hitler in Germany. He was an avowed anti-communist, so Stalin eventually realized that war was a likely outcome. The second five-year plan had, in the back of its mind, the need to ramp up armaments production. But instead of producing volume and running the risks of over-underproduction, the focus was now on quality, also known as mastering the technique. While the projections for the second plan were wildly over the top, as usual, they did achieve a modicum of success. The official numbers claim that the industrial output of the Soviet Union, compared to the rest of the world, went from 3.7% in 1929 to 13.7% in 1937. They also went from 15th place in electrical power generation to 3rd. 
The agricultural side, though, was still an issue for the Soviets, despite all their attention to it. The cold causes became the norm, numbering about 250,000 compared to 29 million farms prior to collectivization. But there was a dark underbelly. There were still peasants that continued to disappear from the farms, much like during the first five-year plan. In total, there were 12 million people who were unaccounted for. Where they went is a mystery to this day. During the third five-year plan, almost all the goals set forth were on military. Not only did they have to ramp up production, but they also had to do it deep inside the Russian countryside to avoid capture by the invading Germans. While production expanded rapidly, it also came at the expense of consumer goods. This caused the black market to become an essential part of Soviet life. All of this suffering by the people of the Soviet Union had to be blamed on someone, of course, other than Stalin. This is one of the reasons why the Great Purge occurred, starting in December 1934 with the assassination of Sergei Kirov. Anyone who was viewed as a threat to Stalin was accused of being a quote-unquote wrecker, or tools of the imperialists, fascists, and Trotskyists. During this period, many of the old Bolsheviks were executed or sent to the gulags. Also, the military's leadership was strangely decimated, even with the threat growing in the East. Even children were encouraged to rat out their own parents. The leader of the NKVD at the time was Nikolai Yezhov, who would eventually be caught up in the purges himself. This issue of Life magazine was unsurprisingly silent about the Great Purge. From here, the issue takes a kind of a pivot. There's a particular focus placed on Russian and Soviet theater, art, music, ballet, and cinema. As for the theater, Life wrote the following, quote, Today, the Soviet theater is mobilized, and together with cinema and ballet, it's playing an important role in the war effort. During the siege of Moscow, all theaters were evacuated, but last fall, with the Nazis less than 100 miles away, the little theater reopened with the Patriotic War of 1812, based on Tolstoy's War and Peace. Wherever battles are fought, the theater brigade is right behind with its songs, sketches, and historical productions. One troop, performing before an anti-aircraft battery, was caught in an air raid, saw two enemy planes shot down by members of the audience. Another aspect of Soviet life that was praised was Russia's increased literacy. Prior to the revolution of 1917, it was claimed that 73% of Russians were illiterate. In 1943, the Soviets claimed a literacy rate of 80%. This amounts to 100 million people learning how to read in the previous 26 years. While this seems to be an almost too good to be true scenario, it is likely that there was a pretty substantial increase in literacy. A whole section of this issue of Life magazine was devoted to the amazing architecture of Russia and the Soviet Union. They published pictures of a number of famous Russian Orthodox churches as well as the Peterhof Palace, which they pointed out was still occupied by the Nazis. They contrasted the old architecture 
with what they called the functionalist period of Soviet building. Two examples were the Lenin Library in Moscow and the Red Army Sanatorium in Sochi. Throughout the magazine, they remarked on the enormity of the Russian landscape. Quote, Infinite diverse in its racial and cultural facets, the USSR's topography, the greatest flatland on the face of the earth. It has its mountains, the soaring Caucasus crowned by Mount Elbrus, the highest peak in Europe, the Pamirs of Tajikistan, the little-known Altai ranges of southern Siberia. But aside from the Urals, whose top peaks climb only a little higher than the gentle Adirondacks, Russia's great mountain systems all rise in border regions. The bulk and plateau of European and Asiatic Russia is plain and plateau. Three following pages are filled with color photographs of Moscow's Red Square. Quote, political, cultural, and historic heart of the far-flung Russian domain, Moscow came into being as a 12th century fortress and trading town. It was the seat of the Tsars until Peter the Great moved his capital to St. Petersburg. Today, Moscow, population 4,137,018, is the fourth largest city in Europe and the capital of the USSR. Next up, life sings the praises of the peasant farmer. Quote, From Minsk to Tomsk, and wherever the good black soil tops the Russian plain, there dwells still the sturdy, everlasting farmer and his family. He is superior to his peasant forebears in many ways. Better educated, more intelligent, ambitious, and idealistic. His log house is cleaner and bigger. Instead of sowing his separate plot, he works now on the broad acres of a state or collective farm. Though he grumbles sometimes like farmers everywhere, for the most part, he's content. He's a better man than his father and grandfather. But his blood is the same. His face is the same. And his face is the face of Russia. Note, still no mention of the horrors the farmers of the Soviet Union went through over the previous 26 years. It is likely that very little about the peasant struggles was known in the West. We now know differently. The following section is entitled, 1,000 Years of Russia. It's a historical recap of the history of the country. However, it starts with a picture of character actor Nikolai Simonov in his role as Peter the Great. It goes through the start of what they call organized Russia with the landing of the Norseman Rurik and pays tribute to the many important moments of Russian history. In panel four, they do mention that under Yaroslav, quote, Kiev was the brilliant capital on the Dnieper. Moscow did not exist. There were 53 panels in all, the last being an iconic picture of Tsar Nicholas II and his family on a rooftop in Ekaterinburg shortly before their execution. Life had this to say about Russia's history. Quote, 200 million people east of the Dniester, along the endless marches from the Carpathians to the Pacific, have a past that is utterly mysterious to most Americans. 
Few Americans know that the first Rus princes were Vikings who set on the Dnieper trade route to Constantinople. That Rus was a small area around Moscow in as late as 1400. That until 1462, it was a subject state of the Mongol Khans. That the first self-styled czar was Ivan the Terrible in 1547. The really great names in the growth of Russia are Alexander Nevsky, Dmitry Donskoy, Ivan III, Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, and Catherine the Great. The last three fairly eccentric human beings. The mass of Russians, now numbering about 155 million, overran all of Central and Northern Asia by the 19th century and conquered 175 other peoples. Life here represents a brief history as shown in old prints, paintings, old photographs, and as reenacted in Russian movies. The Soviet state does not by any means represent a total break with Russia's past. Beset by many enemies, the early Grand Dukes made service to the state the first duty of all men. The system broke down with the rise of the privileged classes of the last czars, and the communist revolution may be said to have restored it. Don't have too much to argue with their version of Russian history, although that last line of the restoration of service to the state as the first duty of all men is a bit of a reach. But on the other hand, it is obviously meant to tell the American people that the Soviet Union, it's not as bad as they were told previous to the war. The following article was on the Russian military, and in particular, the leaders of the Red Army. Their main focus was on the nine marshals of the military, beginning with Timoshenko. Here is the assessment that Life magazine wrote about the Soviet Army and their contribution to the war effort. Quote, If anyone had to try to make book on the chances of the Red Army the morning of June 22, 1941, he would have had to quote odds of 100 to 1 to get any bets. Few experts believe that the Russians would hold the 170 crack German divisions, then beginning to roll with the ease of a ballet dancer toward Leningrad, toward Moscow, and toward the Ukraine. But nearly everyone else was resigned to another lightning Nazi victory. Russia, the Nazi propagandists assured the world, already was a military corpse. The following paragraph gives a grim picture of the world and the propaganda had it been accurate. They say, quote, It is easy to visualize the consequences today if that boast had turned out to be true. The phrase, unconditional surrender, would be emanating from Berlin, not from Washington or London. For with the material wealth of the Soviet Union at his back, with an enslaved population of 193 million Russians to levy at will, and undoubtedly with a junction between Germany and Japanese forces somewhere in Asia, Hitler would be impregnable and the United States would be living on borrowed time. They further went on to write, Instead, the Red Army administered the first decisive setback to the quote-unquote invincible Wehrmacht in the summer of 1941. It not only held Stalingrad against Hitler's mightiest onslaughts last November, 
It has chewed up more than 4 million German soldiers, all told, and paved the way for the eventual victory by the United Nations. And the Russian high command, that had looked so dubious, produced the first victorious Allied general of the war, Simeon Konstantinovich Timoshenko. For the following six pages, life sings the songs of praise for Timoshenko and the Red Army. But of course, this tune would change drastically after World War II and the beginning of the Cold War. This life issue continues with some mundane articles about the Russians' love of sports, and as well as the attempts of everyday Soviet citizens trying to enjoy their lives with the continued threat of war. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when I begin a new three-part series, the first two being the transition of Russia into the Soviet Union, with the third issue I mean, the third episode being the transition from the Soviet Union back into Russia, as well as the other countries that were part of the USSR. So, until next time, Das Vidanya Ispasiba Zavinya Manya. <laughs>